If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Leviticus chapter 23. We'll be reading verses 1 through 21. Leviticus 23. This section points to days which are sacred to the Lord. After the Sabbath, verse 3, the feasts are given in the order of the calendar year, or in, in order of the calendar. These festivals do not involve gatherings of all Israel in every case. Only the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Weeks, Tabernacles, require that all males gather in Jerusalem. The Mosaic Ordinance, verse 3, of the fourth commandment came first, Exodus 20, verse 8. Three events were commemorated in March, April, Passover on the 14th, verse 5, Feast of Unleavened Bread, 15th through the 21st, verse verses 6 through 8, and the Feast of first fruits on the day after the Sabbath of Unleavened Bread, verses 9 through 14. The Lord's Passover, in verse 5, was a festival that commemorated God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, in verses 6 through 8, was connected with the Passover, which commemorated Israel's hurried departure from Egypt and the associated hardships. The First Fruits Festival, verses 9 through 14, dedicated the initial part of the barley harvest in March and April and was celebrated on the day after the Sabbath of unleavened bread. The Feast of Weeks, May and June, verses 15 through 22, dedicated the first fruits of the wheat harvest. It occurred on the 50th day after the Sabbath, preceding the feast of the first fruits. It is also known as the feast of harvest, Exodus 23:16 and Pentecost, from the Greek word for 50, Acts 2:1. We'll begin reading Leviticus chapter 23. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you should proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feast. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. 
but you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And you shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a small, you shall offer a male lamb, a year old, without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma. And the drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hen. And you shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh until the same day, until you have brought the offering of your God. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all of your dwellings. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two-tenths of an ephah. There shall be a fine flour, and it shall be baked with leaven as the first fruits to the Lord. And you shall present with the bread seven lambs a year old without blemish, and one bull from the herd, and two rams. There shall be a burnt offering to the Lord, with their grain offering and their drink offerings, a food offering with a pleasant aroma to the Lord. And you shall offer one male goat for a sin offering, and two male lambs a year old as the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall make a proclamation on the same day. You shall hold a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. It is a statute forever in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. Amen. Please turn with me to Romans chapter 5. We'll begin reading at verse 12 through 21. Romans 5, 12 through 21. In one of the most mysterious passages in the entire book, the Apostle Paul sets out to show how one man's death can provide salvation for many. To prove his point, he uses Adam to establish the principle that it is possible for one's man's actions to unavoidably affect many other people. Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 12. This is God's word. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, 
and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many die through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result that one man sinned. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Open your Bibles to the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. I was thinking we would work our way through this chapter after many months in 1 Corinthians and two or three sessions. Looks like it may be more like five or six, but that's that's because I'm a little slow, but it's also because this is extremely rich territory. We are, we are mining a, a deep vein here, and it is, the, the better we understand it, the greater assurance we will have, the greater confidence we will have, the more we will, we will understand we can simply rest upon our Lord and Savior's finished work on our behalf. Let me just take a, a moment or two to remind you where we are in this particular chapter. Uh, Paul reminds his readers, that first century Corinthians, of the significance of the gospel. He said, I preached the gospel to you. You received this gospel. You believed this gospel. You're standing in this gospel. You must be standing in this gospel. And then he defines the gospel in very specific terms, beginning in verse 3. This is, this is a primary, first importance Jesus Christ died for your sins, and he was buried. He died according to the scriptures for your sins, and he was buried. On the third day, he rose from the dead according to the scriptures. And lest you doubt he rose from the dead, he appeared to certain particular people who would know the difference. He appeared to Simon Peter. He appeared to the 12. He appeared to 500 brothers at one time. 
He appeared to his little brother James. He appeared to all the apostles again, perhaps at the ascension there. And of course, after his ascension, he appeared personally to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, and perhaps other times as well. And it changed Saul of Tarsus' life. It changed everything for him. In verse 11, he says, so it, it really doesn't make a difference whether it's me, Paul, preaching this, or all the other apostles preaching it. We're all preaching the same thing, and it's the same thing that you all believed there in Corinth. And I think that could very easily be applied to every believer in this room. It's the same gospel. I pointed out last week, that the bodily resurrection, not just some sort of spiritual resurrection, not, not so this imagined resurrection, but a bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, is an essential element of the faith. And it must be believed. It is necessary for our salvation. Paul stresses that, and we stressed it in last week's message, Beginning in verse 13, he points out, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ isn't raised. Then our preaching's in vain. Then your faith is in vain. Then the apostles themselves are found to be misrepresenting God because they're saying Christ has been raised, but Christ hasn't been raised. If he hasn't been raised, Verse 17 says, your faith is absolutely empty, it's futile. And if that's so, then you are still in your sins, no matter what you profess to believe. And what about all those who've already died believing it? Those that have, quote, fallen asleep in Christ. If there is no resurrection, they've all perished. Not just died, but are gone forever into the ether. He closes that out in verses 19 by saying, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied because we believe the highest possible thing and it all turned out to be empty. How reassuring it is then to look at the very next verse, the, the verse that opens our text this morning, verse 20, and read that Paul says, But in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you that we're not, we're not following legends or mysteries, fairy tales or fables. We're following the word of God, which was given by the Spirit of God moving upon the lives of holy men of God. These things have been pinned. They have been preserved. They have been kept for us. We can, we can hold your word in our hands, though it is alive, though it is life-changing and life-affirming. We can hold it in our hands. We can read it in our own languages. We can understand it. We can hear it preached and proclaimed. We can be led by the spirit of truth into a greater truth, into a greater understanding of your word, a greater understanding of your love a greater knowledge of your purpose. Lord, it is a life-changing experience to encounter again and again the living word of God. We pray, Lord, that as, as we minister, 
one to another. As, as I preach the word of God, as, as, as your people listen attentively and follow along in the scriptures to, to ensure what they're being taught is what God's word says. That, Lord, we will all grow and mature in the faith and be better representatives, better ambassadors for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We have a ministry of reconciliation. Help us to be worthy of that calling, to live worthy of our calling in Christ, in whose name we ask this. Amen. Now we're going to be looking primarily at verses 20 through 23 today because it contains the first great assurance that because Jesus Christ was raised bodily from the dead, we ourselves are going to be raised bodily from the dead. It begins by pointing out that there's an, there is an intimate connection between Christ's bodily resurrection and our own. His bodily resurrection, resurrection which was obviously in the past, and our own bodily resurrections, which are rather obviously in the future, are actually inseparably connected. Verse 13 asked the question, made the point, if there is no resurrection, and then all those consequences. Verse 20 that opens up and says, but in fact, Christ has been raised, and he's been raised from the dead. Literally, the way that reads is, he's been raised out of the dead ones. In other words, he was among the dead ones. And now he's been raised out of the dead ones. And when he was raised in that way, and in that sense, there is a connection between him and us. Look at the way that connection is stated. When Christ was raised from out of the dead ones, he was the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, that's a description of believers after we die. That's a phrase, a descriptive phrase, generally only used of deceased believers, of God's people alone. Uh, uh, probably the most prominent one that uh, comes at least to mind as I was putting this together is the, the martyr Stephen, the first, first deacon martyr, the first the first official martyr, let's say. Ah. At the time that he's being stoned to death, he has a vision of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ standing at the right hand of God, welcoming him. And his last words are, Lord, do not hold this sin against them, the people throwing the stones. But then we read in Acts 7:60, when he said that, doesn't say he died, he said he fell asleep. Those are, those are God's words. He fell asleep, asleep in Jesus. That used to be on a lot of tombstones. One of the pleasures of wandering around old graveyards is you read things like that. You wander around new graveyards, you're going to see all kinds of interesting things. But they do reflect what people's belief system is. And it's certainly not encouraging. Believers are the only ones whose bodies 
sleep in Jesus. Now, there's no question at all, their souls have gone to be in the presence of God. They are not, those souls are not asleep. A, we, we do not believe it. We do not teach soul sleep. That is actually a, a rather heretical view that was very popular in certain heretical circles. The bodies, however, are in some sense resting in Christ Jesus. But that has to be regardless of the state they're in or the condition they're in. Uh, I mean, the scriptures very clearly tell us the sea is going to give up its dead. Well, you know what happens to something that goes into the sea and doesn't come up. It gets distributed, let's say, recycled. That's not a problem for God after he created the sea. He created all the creatures. Ah, if he not only knew how many days we had before there were any of them, he knows how many they have. And he knows where, to get very specific, all the pieces, parts are. And when the day comes, the sea will give up its dead. In fact, the prophet Daniel, in the last chapter of his book, speaks about a remarkable day in Daniel 12, 2, in which all of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. All of them. Some to everlasting life. It didn't say all to everlasting life. Some to shame and everlasting contempt. He's, re he's referring to the second death. He's referring to those that are because they weren't in Christ or separated eternally from God and Christ. That's not life. Life is to know God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. The key term in verse 20 is used for the connection between his resurrection and our resurrection is the word first fruits. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, we encountered first fruits as Brother Walt was reading out of Leviticus 23 about those various feasts. And he covered about four of the seven, I think, maybe five of the seven. Maybe one day we ought to do a study of the feasts. There's, there's all kinds of ways to approach that. But they're not just haphazardly there. There is, there is a message in the feast. They are, these are types. These are figures. These, these, everything in the Old Testament points to Christ. And so we come upon these first fruits of Leviticus 23. Every year as the crops began to mature, the heads of grain became so heavy they started to bow over and everything. Ah, the people of God were to observe the feast of first fruits. They were to gather up some of those early mature sheep, uh, grain, uh, stalks of grain, gather them into sheaves, and bring those sheaves to the priest. The priest then, at a rather remarkable ceremony, would wave the sheaves of grain before the Lord. That was a very visible token of the people's recognition that all of this came from God. So you're kind of bringing Think in our terms of the tithe. We, we give him the tithe not because we think we owe him 10%, but because we recognize he, owes, uh, he owns all of it. And, 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 and if, if, if he asks for 10, we give 10. If, 
But he's entitled to all of it. He's entitled to everything. So they bring those sheaves in. They're they're submitting to the reality that God did this. God created this. Yes, I know. We went out and we plowed. We're the ones that hooked up the oxen. We're the ones that stayed out there in the hot sun all day. We're the ones that carried the water. We're the ones that did all the hoeing. You know what? There's a lot of parts of the world that same day, no doubt, where people were doing all that kind of stuff, and there's no crop. Because if God doesn't do it, it doesn't get done. Sadly, that describes my experience in vegetable gardening many a time. (laughs) I'm not holding my mouth right some way because not much is happening. But that's an aside here. Ultimately, the Lord is the source of that grain being produced, and it all belonged to him. Now, that particular feast began on the day following the Sabbath that followed the day of Passover. And, and it seems a rather obscure thing, but the only thing that Paul takes from that feast that he's going to use to make his argument here is his name. The name, the first fruits. Of course, it is a God-given name. It is an Old Testament foreshadowing of a New Testament reality. Jesus Christ arose as the first fruits. Well, what do you call that early crop, the first fruits. What's the implication of a term, first fruits? It's that there's going to be more. Right. And, and the more is going to be more of the same thing. Now, I have had some experience with growing tomatoes because I suspect anybody can grow a tomato. And it does seem to take a long time before that first one is ready and you're trying to get there before the bird or the bug does. But when you get there and you harvest that first one, it kind of falls off. You know, it may be this big, it may be it's probably a little one. It falls off in your hand when you touch it, and you don't share it, you just put it in your mouth. It's great. But if you stop and think about it, what it means is there's going to be a lot of more tomatoes. That's what that first fruit meant. There's going to be a lot more. It doesn't mean because that you've got a fresh new tomato you just picked, there's going to be watermelons. It means there's going to be tomatoes. Lots of tomatoes. Jesus Christ arose as the first fruits. Now, just to kind of think back on what Brother Walt read to us out of Leviticus 23. At the end of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which kind of was that week following the Passover, that that feast began. And that feast becomes known as the Feast of Weeks. It's called the Feast of Weeks because it lasts seven weeks. And everybody didn't stand around doing the same thing all the time, but they are observing the fact that the crop belongs to the Lord. The Lord is producing this crop. He, we, we are thankful for what he's doing here. We anticipate to do more and more and more of it through, through the great harvest. And after seven weeks, seven sevens, that's 49 days, you go to the next day after the Sabbath, which is the 50th day. And on that day, there's the Feast of Pentecost. 
And on the Feast of Pentecost, Leviticus 23, 17 tells us, you come out of your dwelling place, but you're not bringing sheaves of grain at this point. You're bringing loaves of bread. You're bringing the product of those sheaves of grain. You're bringing something that's significantly different because in quality, in, in, in amount. Yeah, I mean, and, and you're bringing, every household is bringing these things. And this, this, is, this is what all that first fruit was all about, producing these magnificent loaves, these life-sustaining loaves. Now, let's not get too deep into this, but you see any parallels here? Now, what maybe the Lord was trying to convey to people, I mean, they, they haven't heard the gospel yet. They, they don't understand how the New Testament will work because it hadn't been shared. But they do know for, you know, about 1,400 years, their people have been doing this year after year after year. First fruits, then a feast of weeks, then a great harvest. What do we know about the day of Pentecost? I mean, how many Pentecost do you know about? Well, we know about a great one. And it happened one day, 50 days after the resurrection. And Simon Peter stood up and he said, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, a man that you know, God attested you by the miracles he did to be something really special. You took him and in cooperation with the religious authorities, the government authorities, but the Bain crowd, you murdered him. You crucified him. But God raised him up. God raised him up and named him to be both Lord and Christ. It was his Messiah. You killed the Messiah. Now, I expect a lot of people were unhappy about that in, in the wrong sense. But a vast multitude were stricken to the heart. What can we do? What should we do? How do we escape what we've done? He says, change your mind about what it was. Repent. Believe. Yes, I know, 50 days ago to say these things would get you killed. You need to step forward and say it publicly. Be willing to be publicly baptized and identify with the man that you orchestrated the murder of. What would it take for people to do that? It would take a working of the Spirit of God. And what happened? 3,000 people stepped forward and were baptized that day. And within days, another 5,000. Before you know it, Peter and James and John, they were, they're in trouble because as the Sanhedrin would say, we told you not to be mentioning Jesus anymore. We're sick of hearing it, but you filled this entire city with his name. See, that's the power of God. Those are whole loaves. That's not just a grain offering. The first roots guaranteed and ultimately produced those whole loaves. Now, the... The resurrection of believers is not going to be different than the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He was raised in the same body in which he was buried. 
It was flesh and bone. He could be handled. We went over this last week. He spoke to disciples. Yes, he could suddenly appear in the room, and he could suddenly go somewhere else, and you know how he came or how he went. But while he was there, he would say, why don't you touch me? Why don't you feel me? Oh, I'm not a spirit. A spirit does not have flesh and bones. Oh, by the way, have you got anything to eat? And then he would eat in front of them. That's his resurrection body. The argument of scripture is that's going to be your resurrection body. Now, I can't explain how that works, but I don't have to. I simply believe God says it. Now, now perhaps you don't find that argument entirely persuasive. And I'm, I'm just hypothesizing here because I know you want to believe it. But Paul allows for that, and he offers an explanation for the connection between Jesus' resurrection and our own in the following verses. And if you grasp this, you'll find it very reassuring. He says in verse 21 and following, For or because, as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Now here's Paul's explanation. This is given to him, the Holy Spirit, given to him by God. There's a parallel between Adam and the second Adam, Jesus Christ. The link between them is both death and life. How do you explain the reality that everybody dies? I mean, that is what's going to happen. Everybody's going to die. Sooner or later. It's just the way it works. Well, because death is kind of a human thing. If you're human, sooner or later, you're going to die. It is a human thing. It's not a God thing. Adam was a human. He was a man. Actually, the word Adam, the name Adam, in Hebrew just means a man. I created the man. Adam. Adam sinned. We won't go into it. You, you pretty well know the story. He sinned because he sinned. He died. Yes, it took 900 years. But he died. We're human beings. We sin. The wages of sin is death. We will die. Probably won't take 900 years. But if it does, we're still going to die. Christ in his incarnation, became a man. He's the God-man. He's fully God, but he's fully man. Now, God cannot die. It was probably 20, 30 years ago, many American theologians and some European ones were going around proclaiming the fact God is dead. We killed him because we're so evil or because we just don't care. God cannot die. But in his humanity, Jesus Christ, as a man, could die and did die. And as a man, he was raised bodily from the dead. I mean, that's a remarkable truth. And you'll recognize, we, Brother Walt read to us about this in Romans 5. 
That harvest of first fruits just continues through the Feast of Weeks until that great day of Pentecost when there was that great ingathering. Paul explains it a little further in verse 22. He says, as in, as in Adam, all die, in the same way in Christ shall all be made alive. What did those two men, what those two men did affected all of us. There's a cause and effect connection. Now the theologians, and when I speak of them, I'm talking about them, not me. Uh, theologians generally explain the connection bet between us and them, between them and God's plan, as uh, either being federally a connection or seminally a connection. You don't need to know either one of these words, but I'll tell you kind of what they mean. Federally would mean each are a representative of us. Adam represented all mankind. Christ represents all of his people. Let's put it that way. All right. And so when, when Adam sinned because he was our representative, we all sinned. The president said, if we're going to go to war, we go to war. Apparently, we don't need Congress anymore anyway. All right, but that's, that's an aside. That's not part of the sermon. Okay. The other possibility is the, the seminally part, which basically means that when Adam sinned, we were in the loins of Adam because he's the first man and everybody is descended from him. Now you can see the implications for an evolutionary view that we all came up on separate parallel trees and at some point we came out of the trees and we all became people. Oh, it, it really destroys any possibility of this. There's an interesting passage in Hebrews 7. You might just want to write this down. Hebrews 7 verses 9 and 10. Reflecting back upon what happened in Genesis 14 when Abram, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. And it speaks about the fact that when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, Levi was in his loins. Now Levi isn't even his son. You got to go from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob one more generation before you get to Levi. But what the author of Hebrews is saying is that when Abraham did that, everybody descended from him did that. See, I, I prefer the, the latter view, the seminal view. But either one will work in this particular case. Of course, if you don't like either one of them, well then, you always have the option to stand or fall on your own. You can either accept the fact that you've Maybe, maybe I'm not connected to Adam in any way. I'm just me. I'll just live my own life and take my chances. Or, or maybe there's an entirely different way. Well, if you want to think that way, you ought to spend at least a little time reading Job 38 and 39. Because in Job 38 and 39, God asked Job a series of questions. We're not going to read the whole series of questions. But there are questions like this. Hey, Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? Hey, Job, 
Who determined how big it was going to be? Who shut in the sea? Are you the one that commands the mornings to happen? Are you the one that calls the sun to rise? Are you the one that establishes how clouds are formed? Are you the one that controls the snow? Are you the one that knows where, where mountain goats bear their young? It goes on and on and on and on at the end of the time. Job has the good sense to say, I don't know any of that. I'm dealing with something so much smarter than me, I can't even comprehend the totality of what the questions are. Perhaps you'd rather be in that situation. I'll just guess I'm probably right and God's wrong. That would be an extremely foolish place to be. Extremely foolish. But verse 22 tells us, as in Adam, all die. But it also tells us that in Christ shall all be made, alive, made alive. Now, on the face of that, that looks like maybe those universalists have a pretty good idea. Maybe, maybe everybody's going to make it. I mean, everybody but Hitler and Jeffrey Dahmer, okay? But everybody else is going to be in. It does kind of look like that until you look at verse 23. Because verse 23 tells you, you do realize it, it's all each in his own order. Christ is going to be the first fruits. Then, and there's this phrase, at his coming, which we'll expand upon here in a moment. Those who belong to Christ. In other words, there's, that's the all being referred to? Yes. Uh, in Adam, all die. In Christ... All those who belong to Christ will be made alive. That doesn't mean some are not going to come out of the grave to everlasting destruction and corruption and shame. But all who belong to Christ are going to be made alive at his coming. We're not going to take the time, and I probably couldn't get it right anyway, telling you when he's going to come. I can just assure you he is going to come, and he himself assured it's going to be a time you don't expect. Now, when I was a little Southern Baptist boy and I heard things like that, I would intentionally, in my mind, say, I think he's coming this week, because I didn't want him to come this week because I had things to do. I know your mind's never worked that way. Mine did all the time. It's okay if he comes right now. But when he comes, those who belong to Christ, those who belong to him are going to be with him, and they're all going to be raised. It's a great and glorious thing. So the question before us is, well, how do you belong to Christ? To belong to Christ, one must be in Christ. To be in Christ, one must be, as, as Jesus told Nicodemus, born again, or born from above. You have to be born from above. You, to, to be born again, you have to believe in Christ. In fact, you have to believe into Christ. It really is placing your confidence entirely in him and in his finished work. It's a joining of yourself to Christ. It's a committing of your life to Christ. 
for him to do with as he chooses. Like 3,000 people did on the day of Pentecost. I mean, I suspect for the next couple of days, hey, this is great. Now we're just waiting on the Lord to return. But the teaching's going on. The teaching's things is, is, I mean, the apostles are teaching things like, you know, one of the last things he told us was, you're going to be one of my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. You need to go into the whole world and make disciples of all men. What are you sitting around here for? Well, we're just waiting on the Lord to come back. So the Lord turned loose Saul of Tarsus on them. And then they ran for their lives. And that was part of God's plan. You did the, the easy way or the hard way. But God's, God's work is going to get done. So believing in Christ involves basically giving yourself to the Lord. To do with as he wishes. The, the corollary question is, how, well, how can I be sure I've done that? How can I be sure I'm saved? Saved's a good word. We, we throw it around right and left. It's used at least 50 times in the New Testament of believers. But the primary word used to describe believers is that they are in Christ or in the Lord 130 times. That doesn't include the times when we're just in him. And the H is capitalized, so you've got to know who we're talking about here. The teaching of Jesus is coming to me. All you that are weary and heavy laden, come to me. I'll give you rest. Now you, I, I'm not heavy. You think I'm going to be heavy. I come that you might have life and have it to the fullest, that your joy might be full. The Holy Spirit provides as we come to him redemption from the slave market of sin provides adoption into the family of god provides a declaration that we are righteous we call that justification it provides a process of sanctification in which we are transformed from glory to glory into the image of the son of god himself so that when we see him we will be just like him that's called glorification Everyone in him receives all of those. In the mind of God, they already have. That is a great and glorious thing. Those are the benefits. But Christ is the source. He's the source of everything, including the reality that you will rise bodily from the grave. And if you were to come back and visit now, we are getting the hypothetical. If you were to come back and visit your friends and family and scare them half to death because they thought they were seeing a spirit, you could actually say, now, touch me. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. You got anything to eat? Now, that's not the way it's going to work, but that's the kind of a body you're going to have. And there's... I'm not going to tell you what age you're going to be. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you what you're going to look. Everybody's going to know everybody. I'm not, let's not get down that much into the weeds. Maybe there's an age you'd prefer to be. I don't know how that works. You're going to be you. And everybody will know you. So the question is, what's keeping you from simply not just desiring that, 
but committing yourself to it. Well, what holds you back? Have you got a better plan? You got something you got more confidence in than that? I, I can assure you, your sin nature is, hey, you don't need that. You need that desperately. If the Spirit of God is telling you something isn't right between you and God, don't rest on it. Do business with God. His hand of grace is extended to you. It will close on you. It will deliver you. It will keep you. It will raise you. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, thou art the great and glorious one, the first fruits. The first fruits of all creation, in a sense, and the first fruits, first fruits of the resurrection. What a great and a glorious thing it is to be known as a Christian, to have a present of privilege like we do, and to have a future so glorious we cannot possibly comprehend it. Lord, this is one of those Selah moments, a time in which we really need to think on these things, to meditate upon these things, to allow your spirit to work them in and through our consciousness, that we may get this matter settled, that we may be in Christ and know that we're in Christ, that we may have the assurance that we need to walk worthy of our calling, to live worthy of our calling, to magnify that calling in the eyes of a world that rejects it, that you may be glorified in all things. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.